Welcome back to What in the World. My name is Ryan Rosenthal, joined as always by my co-host Andre Ganoella. And Andre, we are both in not very ideal places to record a Friday podcast, but here we are. I am currently outside in the District of Columbia. You are in an airport. <laughs> yeah, I got into O'Hare Airport uh, this morning at about 4.45 in the morning. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was about 100 bucks cheaper to take a red eye than just take a flight in the morning and get here in the afternoon. But I'm here for my uh, graduate school graduation. Uh, I think I'm very lucky in being one of the first few to get sort of an in-person graduation after this pandemic or at the end stages of this pandemic. So I'm sitting here in the airport. You might hear some people go by, some people come over loudspeakers, but the grind never stops. We got to talk about foreign policy and national security. And I think the first thing that I sort of want to cover is this G7 summit that's happening this week. Uh, some of you might have seen President Biden swatting a cicada away at Andrews Air Force. Well, he was... Uh, he was swatting that cicada away because he was going to go to the G7. He's going to spend about a week in Europe. So, Ryan, what are your thoughts on the G7? It's bound to be a very important week. Uh, going to be very crucial for a lot of, I think, the president's foreign policy objectives. Right. Well, uh, first things first, we actually have an episode coming out on Monday that really digs into the G7 and kind of Biden's reorientation or efforts to make it a D10, that being a basically... 10 of the leading democratic countries in the world, including the EU as well. Uh, and so it really seems that, you know, Boris Johnson is, you know, has this attempt as well to bring together democratic countries. Uh, Britain, of course, is hosting the G7. It, they didn't do it last year in person. So this is a big opportunity for Biden and his administration and the United States. There's an airplane. Apologies. Um, and the United States to um, come together and say this is the U.S. foreign policy kind of doctrine, that of being the promotion of democratic values and ensuring that we can support democratic countries around the world and those countries that are seeking to become democratic. Um, and so it, it really is become the hallmark of the administration. And you can kind of see that in all the people that have been appointed from Samantha Power at USAID, from, you know, you know, Tony Blinken at the State Department. These are all individuals that have the same worldview as President Biden and will likely shape uh, his foreign policy doctrine in that way. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, and I do think the president really sees himself as the purveyor, as the defender of democracy. I mean, we're, we, we've really seen this sort of age of populism, this age of nationalism, and this era of democratic backsliding, at least in terms of certain political tendencies, right? So... President Biden, I mean, you know, he ran on his election to sort of restore, quote unquote, the soul of America. But I think he's sort of observing this larger trend that's happening globally. Right. And I think mm -hmm. he really sees himself like I think, you know, whether or not he believed he was going to be a transitional president, I think, no, not really. He's really caring about his legacy in this instance. And I think, I mean, we have a great episode with Ash Jane and Ambassador Dan Friedman coming out. Uh, soon, that's going to be talking about the, an alliance of democracies, the D10, and so on. But I think that's really going to be a centerpiece of the Biden administration's foreign policy. And I mean, I, I think I saw an Instagram post by Boris Johnson talking about how the G7 was really this group of democracies, this group of major 
democracies, uh, considering especially that what it used to be the G8 and Russia was kicked out, and you wouldn't really yep, call you wouldn't really call Russia a democracy. So I guess now they can call it a <laughs> group of democracies. Right. No. Absolutely. And I think the most interesting part is right. You as Andre, as you mentioned, right. Uh, Boris Johnson, the PM of the UK, is very different from Joe Biden. They are politically not very aligned. Um, that's why, you know, it was probably so successful, um, the relationship between Trump and, and Johnson. But nonetheless, there will be unveiling this new Atlantic Charter. The Atlantic Charter, of course, came towards the end of World War II, uh, where, the, where the UK and, and the United States came out with these kind of values for the post-war world. Um, as you know, the, the U.S. and the U.K. were being bombarded by, by the Nazis and, um, and those powers uh, during World War II. And so it's a, it is an interesting kind of signal that the U.K. and the U.S. will once again reveal an updated Atlantic Charter. And we talk about this a bit more in the episode coming out Monday. Um, but uh, across the board, what we're seeing is that these democratic countries, these leading large powers, um, are coming together and trying to chart a new path forward because of the the um, aggressive or assertive activities by countries like China, Iran, Russia, North Korea, uh, it seems like the leading democratic powers are going to come together and try to make sure that the world is not, you know, kind of backsliding into autocracy. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, he's going to be in Europe for a week. He's going to meet with Queen Elizabeth uh, as well in Britain. So I think... uh, It'll be uh, it'll be very interesting. It'll be an interesting week. Uh, certainly, we'll have more to talk about the G seven once it actually happens. So that wait sure uh, make sure you listen to us next Friday. But uh, Ryan, uh, Biden's also supposed to have this uh, big meeting with Vladimir Putin that's coming up, and I think Putin, in a big signal to the United States, just banned Alexei Navalny's uh, political party from Russia. Yeah. So the um, the Moscow City Court actually handed down a ruling. Um, on, on Wednesday, which is preventing Navalny's anti-corruption foundation and basically his regional political offices to seek public office. Um, Russia has kind of strengthened their quote-unquote extremism laws, and they're you know, very you know, broad and sweeping and basically allow the government to prevent anyone who they deem as extremists from engaging in the political process. And so by, you know, by the city court, um, which isn't you know, very fair independent, by having this ruling come down, uh, Navalny and and all the people who have worked very hard for the democracy movement in Russia will no longer be able to kind of participate in the process. And so, I mean, this is just a, another blow for the pro-democracy movement in Russia. And an interesting quote from a Navalny aide is he said, quote, I woke up as an extremist um, and, and he had to continue doing his work, right? He, so they, this kind of came as a shock to them. Um, though it's not much of a surprise in Russia that this happens. Um, the, the prosecutor's office in, in Russia uh, has been on kind of, you know, just a, a crusade against Navalny and others like him. And they've done a variety of things from arresting, you know, former and current members of the opposition movement of those who are, you know, a part of this free Russia movement. And it's, it's deeply unfortunate to, to see this. I mean, and it comes at a time where you know, you said that, of course, President Biden will be meeting with President Putin. And when there's actions taken like this, I mean, President Biden's going to have to make a stand because if he doesn't, he's a hypocrite. And so it's going to be very difficult to, you know, to have any sort of um, positive progress in a summit with Putin if you don't, you know, have some sort of concessions. But you can't make concessions uh, with a guy. 
if you if with a guy like Putin because of all the actions he's taking, and so it's going to be very interesting the fine line, or maybe not the fine line that the administration takes in this meeting. I mean, I mean, we just had an interview with former Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta, one of then Vice President Biden's colleagues in the Obama administration, and you know, Secretary Panetta was very firm in stating, "You have to deal with Russia from a position of strength." You cannot deal with them from a position of weakness. And Putin has sensed weakness in the United States for the past couple of years. And I'm not necessarily sure if that was only within the Trump administration. Recall, uh, during the Bush administration at the tail end, nothing was really done about Georgia. I mean, really, like, nothing happened when the Russians invaded Georgia. Similarly, I mean, yeah, there was some political blowback and perhaps some, like, other actions that were taken. But did Putin really suffer? Did he really suffer as a result of taking the Crimea? Right. Did he, Ryan? Uh-huh. I, well, I would say only slightly. Yeah. Uh, because they, they did target, right? They used economic sanctions to target uh, both Putin, but more so people in his inner circle, because most of his uh, wealth is, you know, allegedly tied up in, you know, the, the oligarchs and those who are basically, you know, part of this patronage system. And so... It's been quite effective in targeting those uh, who are either, you know, members of, you know, the, the Russian government or those who are very, you know, closely connected to it. And so that, that's had a huge impact on Russia's economy, on the, the, the wealth and finances of these very important individuals in Russia. But at the end of the day, you know, even if Russia's economy is struggling, the Russian regime can, til- can still maintain its strength because of the repressive abilities of its security services. And interestingly, right, you know, Russia, you know, has, has undergone this, this kind of economic decline, but, you know, the, the public, you know, while they've, you know, protested and all of that, the, the government still ma- maintained pretty strong. And so we've seen every so often cracks in the regime, uh, but it still seems pretty, pretty damn strong to me. And so um, again, right, I mean, the, the Biden administration and other Western powers are going to confront Russia but I'm not so sure how successful it's going to be. And by having a summit, by sitting down with Putin in Geneva, that is basically a legitimization of, of the Russian government, of Putin. Um, and even if Biden says, you know, you have to stop jailing dissidents, you have to stop poisoning people, you have to stop engaging in mm-hmm. cyber attacks. But it's not Putin might say, you know, we, all he's going to say is, you know, we don't do that. It's not us. Yeah. Uh, we're looking into it. And so, I mean, it's, it's not going to be very productive. Absolutely. And, you know, another thing that I sort of want to touch on with regards to Russia, with regards to the overarching G7, is uh, how confident can these, you know, geopolitical leaders be in the United States? I mean, I was just reading this article in the New York Times, and they actually quoted uh, Barry Povell, our friend at the Atlantic Council's Scowcroft, Scowcroft Center. And he said, I mean, these leaders saw what happened on January 6th. And Barry said that, you know, they know that you can have a new president in 2024 that could basically reverse a lot of what's happened, right? Like, I mean, President Obama entered the Paris climate deal. He entered the JCPOA. President Trump pulled us out of the JCPOA, pulled us out of the Paris climate deal. So, like, uh, I mean, there's a lot that's at stake here. And it'll be interesting to see politically if these leaders have confidence in the United States and have faith in the in this idea of consistency within the United States. Because, I mean, you know, throughout the Cold War, for example, U.S. presidents were 
very consistent, right? They were very consistent in terms of security policy. I mean, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, yeah, they might have had slightly different policies and approaches to things, but they all generally espoused a similar line of thinking with regards to U.S., the U.S. position in the world. Yeah. I mean, herein lies the threat of populism. I mean, that's as, as clear as ever, right? The, the fact that the U.S. can, in one administration, have you know, a more typical foreign policy in, in another administration, completely reverse it, take the United States in a, in a course that is basically contravenes many of the values that it has upheld for generations. Um, and this isn't just a U.S. problem. I mean, you know, we, we of course talk about, you know, the, the risks of, of populism, the far right, even in, you know, some scenarios, the far left, right? Extremes always have consequences. And in the United States, you know, we saw it, you know, materialize in January 6th, which is terrible. But if you look at the UK, you look at Germany, you look at Italy, you look at Poland, you look at Hungary, there's so many countries, particularly, you know, typical Western democracies that have been struggling with with extremes. And so, I mean, and this is a huge threat. And, you know, everyone's been, you know, everyone has been talking about, there's been a lot of, you know, conversations within the foreign policy community about the, what this will actually mean for, you know, the, the liberal international order that we may or may not still be in. I mean, because the thing is, the Republican Party has just adopted Trumpism as of now, right? I mean, we'll see who they nominate in 2024. But they're very much adopting the style of Trumpism, which has big repercussions on foreign policy. I mean, there are so many articles about, I mean, there are a lot of articles, one about how foreign policy has not changed as a result of Trump. And there are many articles that, you know, allege that Trump fundamentally transformed how U.S. foreign policy occurs. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how this sort of plays out over the next few years whether this is a change that will stick around or whether it's a change that, you know, was more of a one-off sort of situation. Yeah. I mean, again, I'm going to bring up an example, which is, was at least on the surface, a little funny to me, but now after, you know, learning about a bit more is deeply concerning. Um, French President Emmanuel Macron was slapped in the face um, when he would just have like a meeting in a city in France. And interestingly, after the, the police did an investigation, he is an ultra rightist nationalist who basically had this like loyalist, uh, royalist, you know, saying that he said after he slapped the president of France and they went to his home and they found weapons. They found a copy of Mein Kampf. They found flags of, you know, of, of the far right. They uh, just a, a whole series of issues that have been connected with far our right groups and so it's like it's like bush getting the the, the shoe, shoe exactly it's like the shoe being thrown at it's bush like, it's like the shoe it's exactly that's a good um uh, comparison to that but again it, it's a, a symbol of these deep divisions and the, the the problematic aspects within every society of of these extremes and so um interestingly uh the, the far right leader marine le pen came out and you know condemned it which is nice she of course has you know been attempting to you know gain yeah, um, popularity within French's political system, but again, just another symptom of the deep divides across the world. And I mean, I mean, you talk about sort of Nazism in France, right? Uh, I mean, of course, France has had those problems for a long time. I recall Vichy France uh, when the Nazis took over France. Uh, Vichy France was sort of doing, uh, you know, things against the Jews before the Nazis even asked them to. And I, and I think with the popularity of the far right and so on, 
th that problem has existed politically in France for a while. Certainly it exists. I mean, it's existed here, of course, on a much smaller scale. But, uh, I mean, it's, it's a scary thing, right? So to see that someone, you know, was able to get in touch with the president like that uh, is alarming. Incredible, it's very alarming. Incredibly alarming um, that they, one, had the opportunity to do that, and two, that there are individuals who feel like that's an, an, an answer in the political discourse. Um, but anyway, let's, let's move past that, and let's talk about Myanmar. Um, we've talked about Aung San Suu Kyi, this military junta that's kind of basically thrown her out of power. She has been basically imprisoned, and now she's been charged with corruption. And so mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's a, a very dark day in Myanmar. We know that, you know, American and other foreign journalists have been arrested in Myanmar who have been trying to cover this, this military, you know, junta, the overthrow of this, of this government there. And so it, the, this commission is saying that Aung San Suu Kyi misused her authority in some corruption scheme. She illegally accepted cash. Um, it's, you know, I'm, I'm not so confident in the findings of this commission. Um, they don't have a democratic government. They don't have any independence in their, in their you know, legal systems at the moment. And so this is for, for a woman who, you know, has, you know, d done so much to kind of bring Myanmar towards, you know, democracy and albeit, you know, with the human rights violations having to do with, with the Rohingya, the, this minority religious group, that of course is a separate issue, but she was, you know, taking Myanmar in a positive direction. We've seen a complete reversion of that in just, you know, a handful of months. Absolutely. But I mean, you know, whenever we talk about Myanmar, uh, I always pose the question, Ryan, how much power did she truly have? Uh, because I mean, the military always maintained this sort of power. And of course, we saw what was happening with the Rohingya situation, right? How much power did Aung San Suu Kyi have over that, uh, that genocide? Uh, and, and I mean, was she a figurehead? Like, how much political power did she wield? Because the, the military just took it over just like that. Like, right. literally in a day, they just took it over. Yeah, I mean, that's, that is really, that, that's a question. I think it depends on, right, who you ask, but many analysts will say that the military has and always will be in power there just because they are such a formidable force. The supreme power. Right, exactly. Yes, exactly. They are the supreme power. Um, and so while she was this kind of figurehead and she did have, a, you know, some sort of power, I think it's, you know, very fair to say that, you know, she never really did wield any, you know, significant or, you know, um, central power in, in the country, which then also goes to the Rohingya situation that maybe she didn't have any control over how the situation materialized. Um, and so, uh, again, e even if, you know, she was just a figurehead, at least there was some attempt um, by the military to have, you know, a facade of democracy. And now they're just completely get going away with it. And there's not even a, an attempt uh, to have any sort of freedom or, or you know, maintenance of human rights. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it'll be, that's another situation that's been longstanding, but also appears to have no end in sight. I mean, it seems like it might just be a constant from now on, right? This military rule, like it was more like a yeah. flirtation of democracy. And now you're back to the junta. Uh, one last thing before we go, uh, Israel, I, I think, uh, what's the situation with the coalition there? Have they voted on the new government with, uh, with Lapid and Bennett? Is Netanyahu, when's Netanyahu going to be out? Well, this, so the answer is I don't know. We, we have, of course, we've talked about the, um, 
of this, this government that's being put together, this coalition, this very broad coalition of the right and the left and the center and this very crucial Arab party, Ra'am, um, coming together. Um, but at the moment, um, Bibi is not completely gone. They're still, have, they're still attempting to you know, have the no confidence vote, which I don't believe at, at the time of the recording, um, it, it hasn't occurred yet. And so um, it really requires, they require this no confidence vote to actually get Bibi out of power. And then from there, they can have the, the coalition be put together and have this, you know, mishmash government kind of begin to, you know, maybe steer Israel in a new direction or maybe not a new direction, of course, given, you know, the, the, the coalition that's been put together. But and, um, and who's going to be prime minister under that coalition first? Right, exactly. So it's um, it's 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 deeply it's deeply concerning uh, all this kind of instability. Of course, you know, everything's we, concerning these days, Ryan. <laughs> Well, I know, but you know, you still ha- you have you know very recently this this escalation, this war in Gaza. You still see crackdowns in the West Bank, and so um, it's with instability in Israel's own government. It really just is an opportunity for Hamas to kind of seize on that, and Iran as well. You know, we can't forget Iran. Iran has you know a fairly close ties with Hamas and Hezbollah in Lebanon, and so um, any you know kind of weakness seen in Israel is just an opportunity for. Um, for the Iranians and and um, the the Palestinian leadership, just because they they have their own you know their own goals um, that they seek, and and the same yeah. is also to be said for the Israelis. Anytime they can, they will you know seize upon an opportunity. Um, but at the current moment, um, there there's a massive uncertainty in Israel, um, and even though it seems like Bibi will be gone, I, everything I've seen has been saying that Bibi can make the return. To me, it seems very far fetched, but you know. Who, who knows? We're, I'm not sure where Israel's going to go, but it does seem like in the very near future, it'll be in, in Israel without Bibi. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, uh, I think that's it for us. Uh, Ryan, I got to get going. Uh, I've been stuck in this airport for long enough. <laughs> get your flight. <laughs> well, no, get, get the train to get into the city of Chicago. <laughs> but uh, folks, uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, uh, it was a great episode. Uh, we'll have some great episodes coming up. Uh, we're sort of engaging, as I told you, in this spontaneous uh, Israel-Palestine miniseries. Uh, we'll have an episode coming out shortly with uh, Professor Rashid Halidi, who is a very prominent uh, Palestinian academic who talks a lot about Palestinian nationalism from his perspective. We're actively uh, securing an Israeli voice as well to speak on their own perspective. We've had uh, Dr. Jess Genem. Uh, uh, former foreign minister Nabil Fami from Egypt and uh, of course Victor Lieberman uh, from the University of Michigan who've all sort of spoken on this uh, Israeli-Palestinian and also Israeli-Arab conflict as well. Uh, So stay tuned for more of those episodes. Again, we had a great episode with Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta that released last Monday or this past Monday and uh, we have a good episode this Monday coming out with uh, Ash Jane and Ambassador Daniel Fried on the D10 and the Summit Alliances of Democracies. So stay tuned. A lot of good stuff happening. See you all next week.